0: to session number five in our fireside chats uh, concerning class actions jurisprudence. Uh, I'm joined today by Jason Betts, uh, who is a partner in our dispute group based in Sydney, uh, and also by Eva Zerup, who is a senior associate in our disputes group based in Melbourne. My name is Peter Holloway, and I'm a partner in the disputes group also based in, in Melbourne. As I said, this is session number five uh, in our fireside chats. Uh, In some of the earlier sessions, the focus was upon uh, what we would describe as securities uh, class actions, the the typical instance of where there has been a a, uh, reduction in the share price of uh, a security traded on the ASX, and that has resulted in a a claim of misleading deceptive conduct or non-disclosure, the usual shareholder class action that I'm sure that most people are familiar with. We want to change focus a little bit today uh, and move away from that theme and focus upon uh, where probably class actions originated back in the 1980s and 1990s. And that is what what was described in those days. You don't hear it so much these days, but what's described as the mass tort scenario. And in particular, uh, we want to focus upon uh, product liability claims Uh, that can be based upon a a range of of underlying instances. It might be a a pharmaceutical, uh, it it might be a medical device or it might be a a general um, consumer product uh, where the allegation is that uh, there's some issue with the product uh, that has led to uh, injury, typically injury-based claims, uh, and that's been suffered by a large number of people and and hence the consideration as to whether those claims are to be brought forward uh, as a class action. Uh, Going way, way, way back, uh, these sorts of claims would all be brought as individual uh, claims. And uh, obviously the the issue is to the extent to which those claims can be aggregated and brought forward uh, in a a class action. Uh, These days also that, uh, I mentioned mass torts uh, in in the current environment, Uh, These claims are often combined with statutory-based claims. We obviously, we've had the Trade Practices Act for a long time. We now have the Australian Consumer Law, and very typically, these sorts of claims are pleaded uh, as a claim for a a contravention of one of the consumer guarantee provisions, uh, such as the guarantee that um, products be um, supplied Uh, Without uh, or supplied in an acceptable quality and without something like a safety defect, for example. That's the typical consumer guarantee that might be invoked uh, and that'll be pleaded together with the uh, common law uh, claims, uh, a negligence type claim. So, the particular issue that we want to focus upon um, today uh, is what are the situations uh, in which it is appropriate for those sorts of claims to be aggregated and brought forward as a class action, uh, and when is it not uh, appropriate for that to happen. Uh, Aoife will talk in a moment about some instances of, of surprisingly, uh, this issue is still being debated even in in the year uh, 2020, uh, notwithstanding that the, the class action jurisprudence has been with us for a long time. So uh, with that introduction, uh, I'll hand over to um, Aoife and and Aoife is going to take us through some uh, recent examples where where this issue uh, has been debated in the courts. So uh, Aoife, uh, over to you.
1: Thanks, Peter. Um, Well, as both of you know, the question of when the class action vehicle is suitable for mass product liability claims has, of course, attracted much judicial and scholarly debate, both here and in the U.S., And it's really interesting to see how that jurisprudence has developed here in Australia in the last 20 or so years. And just to put in context, the the types of matters that I'll focus on for today's discussion, as Peter mentioned, are those involving um, mass tort allegation, personal injury, allegations traversing a long period of time where the common use of the product may be said to form the foundation for the claim. Um, and often where the experience of every user will differ depending on individual um, characteristics. So they're distinct from those mass tort allegations in class actions that flow for example from a natural catastrophe or chemical explosion. So I'll start by looking at the federal court decision the full federal court decision in the tobacco class action Um, that proceeding involved three defendants And the period of time was some 39 years. There were 182 different brands of cigarettes and different advertisements and different media and other statements. In that decision the court unanimously held the pleadings did not allege facts which established that each class member had a claim against each defendant and the court held that even if the alleged facts were proven it could not be said that every class member suffered loss as a result of the misleading or deceptive conduct or negligence of every defendant. Um, rather, the court said the claims were of alleged disparate instances of deception or negligence caused by different statements made by the defendant companies um, and were therefore not arising out of the same similar or related set of circumstances. So then in 2011, we had the Viox class action, a well-known Uh, proceeding in this particular area. The allegation related to the prescription drug Vioxx and the lead applicant had taken this particular medication to treat his arthritic pain and alleged that it had made a material contribution to his heart attack. Um, He was successful at first instance and overturned on appeal. Um, Both the primary judge and the appeal court however agreed on the circumstances in which and certain questions could be common to all group members so the appeal court agreed with the primary judge that the negligence and misleading or deceptive conduct and claims under the australian consumer law with respect to fitness for purpose and merchantable quality were not questions that were common to the class um, and must be determined on a case-by-case basis uh, dependent on the individual circumstances of each claimant so then as peter said this has, again, arisen more recently in the um, GIL class action involving pelvic mesh implants. There were three lead applicants. and um, Each had a medical device implanted. Um, however, those three devices did not represent the full range of devices that have been implanted um, across the, all the group members. Um, just as Katzman in that decision referred to an issue as to whether or not the three lead applicants were representative of the broader group as a festering issue, and one which um, she dealt with in her judgment. In that judgment, she relied on Justice Lee's approach in Dillon and RBS group, when his honour held that the term claim must be given a wide meaning. It need not be based on the same conduct and may arise out of disparate transactions and he was satisfied that the statutory requirements um, are satisfied if there's one substantial substantial common issue of law or fact and it follows that the claims of the applicants and the group members can in fact be quite different. Um, so in Gill Justice Katzman again as I said referred to, to Justice Lee's decision and to part 4A of the Federal Court Act and found that the regime expressly contemplates and provides for the individuality of claims within group proceedings, provided those conditions of numerosity, connectivity and commonality are satisfied. And Rana was satisfied that the claims of those three applicants arose out of the same similar related circumstances as across the group. Um, and although there were some issues which may affect only one or other of the applicants or some of the group members and others, uh, and other, uh, other issues which affected individual group members only, um, those claims gave rise to substantial issues of law or fact. Um, Then, as Peter mentioned earlier this year, just as Lee grappled with this issue again in separate proceedings, also involving pelvic mesh implants, and he admonished the approach that had been taken by the applicant and plaintiff law firms where they had issued 12 individual um, proceedings for personal injury in both the federal and state courts rather than a single class action. His honour referred to this approach as lamentable, and went as far as saying that it was in the interest of justice that the entire judicial controversy between the claimants and all those uh, said to be responsible for those wrongs um, and the attribution of that responsibility be determined concurrently. Um, and his honour pointed to the counterfactual and said to deal with this in, in the way that the applicant lawyers had foreshadowed would not only run the risk of potential inconsistency in fact finding, but it would also be inefficient and accordingly inimical to the facilitating the overarching purpose. Um, he also thought it would be appropriate to order um, that the solicitors in question pay the respondents costs of a number of the case management hearings um, where this issue was being determined. So look, that's a pretty quick potted summary, but hopefully just demonstrates how the courts have grappled with this topic over the years and how the jurisprudence has developed from that very detailed consideration of the claims in the tobacco class action and a close scrutiny of whether they could be truly said to arise out of the same similar or related circumstances, um, to VIOX, where the court is really trying to accommodate both the individual and common questions arising in that case, um, right through to more recent cases where this issue has again been grappled with and, and the court is looking at those broader considerations in terms of efficiency um, and the overarching purpose. So with that, I'll, I'll hand back over to you, Peter.
0: Craig, thanks Aoife. There's uh, uh, nothing like uh, um, discussion about where uh, costs should reside and whether they should reside with uh, the practitioners. Uh, there's nothing like that that's going to cause the minds to be focused. Um, so, uh, Jason, I might bring you in at, at this point from what uh, Aoife was saying. It seems that the the issue that the courts and the parties and legal practitioners to avoid any uh, suggestions of costs orders uh, that they all have to grapple with is this uh, this weighing up of the extent to which uh, individual individual issues um, predominate, to use that word, as as distinct from uh, common issues. So I might just get you to comment upon how um, class actions are structured. We've all heard about this notion of the initial trial and and how that uh, links in with the legislative regime um, for the conduct of class actions. So. I'll, throw that to you.
2: Thanks, Peter. Yes, so that's an interesting uh, dimension to approach the interface between product liability class actions and our class actions regime. You've both touched on this and I think it's important just to think about this when we approach the topic. When we had a federal regime for class actions introduced in 1992, it was broadly speaking part of a package of reforms legislative reforms that also included the adoption of a a strict liability regime for for product liability. Uh, And although there are other species of class actions contemplated when when our, our federal legislation was introduced, clearly product liability claims were at the forefront of the minds of those that enacted the legislation as being a useful way to bring those claims by aggregating Uh, similarly situated claimants together. And that's why I think much of the early jurisprudence in this space is actually product liability claims being litigated through the courts and testing the boundaries and the dimensions of our class action regime. Now, products claims are less common as a proportion of overall class action litigation than they once were, but they are not infrequent. And they're large cases when they're commenced and they do raise a number of doctrinal challenges in the ways that you've discussed. The issue that you are touching upon is perhaps one of the more important, which is our system is designed with, our class action systems designed with relatively low thresholds for commencement. So strictly speaking, and this compares starkly with the position in the United States, which I'll come to in a moment, strictly speaking, all that is essentially necessary to commence the class action is a single common issue of law or fact Um, and seven or more group members who share that common issue. So uh, that that threshold is set relatively low. The the difficulties that that threshold has perhaps created in the context of products claims is that we've seen product liability claims commonly involve very idiosyncratic circumstances of loss, particularly for alleged personal injury claims brought within the product liability class action. And the concern has been the obvious one, which is that are there cases where the degree of of, of idiosyncratic circumstances of group members or the individuation, as it's sometimes called, required to determine the claim mean that the class action is actually not the appropriate vehicle for those claims to be resolved, in other words, the common issues don't predominate over those that are individual, and there've been different judgments that have come down on different sides of that equation. There's famous cases, product liability cases, where that issue's been overcome. So a famous one in Australia is the is Ryan and Great Lakes, where there was a period of release of effluent from septic tanks into a certain estuary system, which caused food poisoning. in in certain oysters farmed from that system. And liability was ultimately established in in a general sense, uh, in respect of a failure of the local government to ensure the proper maintenance of the relevant septic systems in that area. That's an example of a case that has fit relatively neatly within the class action regime. But there are many other cases where, including cases we see before the courts today where, The product liability class action creates some of the legal difficulties and and perhaps even some inefficiencies that outweigh the efficiencies associated with bringing aggregate claims together. So in such cases, the, the common use of a product across a wide range of consumers can be said to be the essential core of the case and the thing that is common to the claims of all group members, but then one moves on to observe that the circumstances of the experience of each and every user can differ, truly differ depending on their individual characteristics and their background, particularly in personal injury cases where breaks in the causal chain as a, as a result of medical conditions or other issues that challenge causation do arise. So that, that position, I should say, before I just say a word about the American position, Another difficulty that can arise in that context is um, how does one treat within that circumstance of individual loss the category of claimants that are the the so-called future claimant group. So so injuries as we know caused by some products or allegedly caused by some products can take many years to develop and a class action may ultimately be commenced and in some cases determined before the extent of any future injuries or future claims are known. And depending on how the class actions is defined, those future claims can nevertheless be brought within the definition of the group. And so we've seen the courts grapple with not only how to prosecute those claims through the interlocutory process to trial, but also how does one uh, uh, structure a settlement in a way that's appropriate, given the need to accommodate those future claims. And that draws on this standard dichotomy, which is where we started, which is a class action is really designed to resolve common issues, but not to resolve issues necessarily of an individualistic nature. Now, just lastly, holding that thought, compare the position in the United States where broadly you've you've got two ways of bringing uh, a product's liability claim in an aggregate form. You can commence a class action under their rule 23 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, which is, philosophically and even anatomically a little bit similar to our class action regime, or you can bring a multi-district litigation suit which we'll park for the moment. It is, Although it is the case that class actions are commonly filed in the United States uh, in in respect of product liability, it's now virtually unanimous uh, Mm -hmm. and certainly unanimously recognised by the US courts that product liability class actions cannot be certified if plaintiffs are seeking damages for personal injuries, precisely for the reason we've been discussing. That is that injured class members almost certainly have very varying injuries, alternative uh, theories of causation and, and different degrees of damage. And classes are more commonly certified in those cases seeking purely economic damages. For instance, when all class members were similarly harmed by overpaying for a product that didn't have the the represented attributes or were all defective in a similar way, rather than individual circumstances of personal injury, which cases do not get certified in the United States. So that's that's a summary, I think, of how the class action structure in this country creates challenges for product liability claims, given that common issue versus individualistic issue dichotomy. Thanks, thanks,
0: Jason. Uh, for those viewing this webinar, you'll you get the very distinct impression, as I just did, that uh, Jason could talk to this topic for hours if he was given the opportunity. Uh, you'll you, be happy to know that uh, we, we're going to try to limit this, this webinar to about 15 or 20 minutes, which we've probably just about taken up already. I must say, Jason, uh, I learned a new word. Uh, I'm sure it is a word, uh, but uh, I learned it for the first time today in individuation. So I'll, I'll put that one down in my uh, repertoire for, for future use in some way on some occasion. Um, so look, uh, I must say all of these issues are, are very intriguing. Uh, Aoife and I uh, were involved in some uh, litigation a few years back um, uh, that was the the class action aspect of the thalidomide litigation and, and everyone knows those claims uh, originated way back in the 60s and 70s, and so we we, we sort of have seen this live itself out uh, in real life. That originally a lot of those claims were brought forward as individual claims, and, uh, and it also picks up that notion that Jason mentioned about future claims, because that the class actions of uh, 10 years or so ago now uh, were brought forward by people who at the time earlier, a decade ago, um, uh, were not perceived uh, to be uh, the potential claimants. So we've sort of seen all of these issues uh, live themselves out o- over the decades and no doubt they will continue uh, to uh, evolve uh, as the courts and the parties and the practitioners continue to grapple with with all of these sorts of very, very tri- sometimes very tricky uh, issues. Um, so look, I'll give Aoife and Jason an opportunity to make any final comments, but otherwise we'll uh, we'll draw the session to a close. So before we do, uh, Aoife and Jason, did you have any last remarks that you wanted to to
2: make before we wrap up? One quick one is um, uh, it will be interesting to see um, whether the some of the legislative changes, including the introduction of contingency fees into the Victorian Supreme Court, uh, impacts at all the propensity for filings of uh, products liability claims. We know that there are still large product claims within the court system. They are probably not the preferred vehicle for litigation funders, although they do receive funding on occasion. Perhaps some of the largest mass tort and product liability claims have been unfunded uh, and supported by the relatively few law firms that have the financial capacity to carry that significant risk. With contingency fees being introduced, it will be interesting to see whether we see a uh, lawyers incentivized by that form of compensation focus more on some of the product liability claims that are perhaps being overlooked at the moment for economic reasons or indeed whether it provides the same incentives that funders have seen which is a push towards the, the more corporate governance type of claims.
0: Uh,
2: okay Aoife just
0: before we, we wrap up Aoife
2: did you have any comment on on the
0: likely future of these claims in Australia as you see it?
1: Yes look I think as long as we see those large um, US jury awards and, and large settlements Overseas, I think this is um, an area that will continue in Australia despite some of the the complexities that we've just discussed in terms of um, causation as as well as uh, limitation issues. Um, But I think this is an area, and as Jason said, this um, introduction of contingency fees will be interesting to see the the impact of those on um, the future of these claims in Australia.
0: Okay, well, thanks very much, uh, Jason and Aoife. And for those tuning in, hopefully you found this session. Uh, interesting and informative Uh, as I said at the start this is number five in our series of fireside chats there there will be more all coming to you from our respective working from home uh, environments speaking to you from Melbourne we're not quite sure how much longer this uh, situation will continue but we fear uh, that might be a little while yet Um, so thank you very much for tuning in and uh, we'll see you next time